great, great, great. Good to see you all here. And uh, turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 10. We're in Romans chapter 10. And uh, I have there at the top of your notes, where are we in Romans 9 through 11? As we do this study of Romans 9 through 11, looking at the mystery of God's majestic mission of mercy. Where are we? Well, uh, I, I kind of have an outline, an overview there, a chart that'll show you Romans 9 through 11. And let's just look at 9 and 10 because we're moving into 10 now. Notice that uh, the focus on God in chapter 9 is His merciful majesty. And here in 10, it's His missional message, the message of righteousness, the message of the gospel, righteousness in Christ. The focus in chapter 9, without a doubt, was what? Divine sovereignty. There was no missing that. But here in chapter 10 is human responsibility. And what we see, what we're going to see in our scene in Romans 10 is what do we do as sinners with our responsibility before God? Notice the, the topic through all of this is Israel. And in chapter 9, we looked at their past election in eternity past and in history past. And now we're going to examine and look at their present rejection of Christ. There in chapter 9, there were all sorts of questions and objections that Paul raises and he answers. And you saw those four. We've gone through those numerous times. They're listed there. Has God's promises failed? Is God's unconditional election fair? Why does God still find fault? And is there any reason or room for faith in light of God's sovereignty? Well, we answered those questions, but now we're in 10. And when it comes to human responsibility, there's a couple questions that Paul is going to answer in this chapter. Notice what it says. How did pagan Gentiles receive what was promised to chosen Israel? Or you could say this. How did pagans get what God's religious, uh, spiritual, good people didn't get? How did bad people get it and good people miss out? Or you could say it this way. How did zealous Israel miss out on their promised Messiah. So that's kind of, you could read through the rest of those, but that's, I just want to give you some orientation as we dive into 10. Now, this morning, I want to talk about a very basic, very important, most important question in all of life. Who goes to heaven? Who goes to heaven? Uh, most people understand that the Bible teaches there's two places, right? Heaven and, and hell. And Jesus himself spoke of both places. In fact, he spoke of hell more than anyone else in the Bible and uh, often spoke of hell more than he did of heaven. All of us, I'm sure, would like to go to heaven if we could, right? If you, even if you're not a Christian, I'm sure if you're given the choice, do you want to go to the good place or do you want to go to the bad place? Which place do you want to go to? You want to go to the good place. Now, I want to begin with two very simple observations. So let's take a look at those. Observation number one about going to heaven. Not everyone is going to heaven. Not everyone is going to heaven. Contrary to what uh, some popular authors or pastors may think, Jesus said very clearly, and I have it there in your notes, in Matthew 7, 13 through 14, wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to what? Destruction. And many enter it through it. But small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to what? Life and only a few find it. Not everyone is going to heaven. I like uh, the line from a Negro spiritual that says it well. Everybody talking about heaven ain't going there. And that's just true. 
A lot of people talk about heaven. A lot of people sing about heaven. And most people, let's be honest, most people think that they and their loved ones are going there. But that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said many, many, many people are not going to make it. There's two roads in life. One leads to heaven. The other leads to hell. There are many on the road to hell. Only they don't know it. They don't know it. This means that millions of good, decent, religious people who think they're going to heaven one day are going to find out that they're not. In fact, in Matthew 7, where Jesus said there's the broad way and the narrow way, he goes on down in verses 21 through 23, and here's what he says. Not everyone, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? I mean, I don't know how much more good, spiritual and religious you could be. And then I will declare to them. And this is just so sobering. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So. So what people, what we think of ourselves versus what God thinks of us is sometimes drastically different. First observation, not everyone's going to heaven. Observation number two, most people believe that good people go to heaven. Most people believe that good people go to heaven. In fact, according to one poll, 53% of Americans agreed good works can earn a place in heaven. In other words, one out of every two people you meet at school, at work, living next door, believe good works can earn a place in heaven. And what's so dramatic about that is over 35% of those who identify themselves as born again agree with that. Over 35% of those who are born again or who profess to be born again, who say they identify themselves, would say, yes, good works can earn a place in heaven. In 2007, BeliefNet conducted a similar poll asking this question. Can good people outside your faith tradition attain salvation as you understand it? Now, five answers were, uh, were provided, and here's the percent. And overwhelmingly, 58% said this, yes, fully, if they are sincere in their attempts to know or worship a deity. Yes, fully. They can be fully be saved outside of my faith tradition as long as they are, in the key word, sincere in their attempts to know or worship a deity, any deity, as long as it's a deity. 3% said, yes, they can be saved, but not fully, probably headed towards some sort of purgatory or they're on the outskirts of salvation, the outside of the kingdom, but not as close as those on the inside. One percent know, but they are not punished. And only 28 percent said no, and unfortunately, there are consequences. No, and unfortunately, there are consequences. And nine percent said, I do not know. So let me ask the question this morning directly to you. Will good people go to heaven? Will good people go to heaven? Now, obviously, in a room uh, this size and, and with this many of people, I, you know, in fact, in some ways, I hope and I imagine there are different answers to this question. Some of you may just say, yes, yes, 
I mean, I may not, you know, I'm getting the feel that that's not the answer you want, so I won't say it out loud right now, but yeah, in my heart, that's what I think. Yes, yes. Some may say, no, no, definitely not. Some may say, maybe, I, I don't know. I mean, I, 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 I know what I want to say or what I ought to say, but I know what I want to say, and it's not the same as what I ought to say. And some may just say, I don't know, and that's fine. Because in the end, it doesn't really matter what I say or what you say to that question, do good people go to heaven? Whose answer is the only one that matters? God's answer. So the question becomes, has God answered the question, do good people go to heaven? Now, this question is, do good people go to heaven? Or you could say it this way, do religious people go to heaven? Or do sincere spiritual people go to heaven regardless of what they believe or who they follow? Now, this question, if you've watched any sort of uh, uh, news programs where Christians or pastors or evangelists are interviewed by the secular media, then you know that this is a favorite question. This is the favorite question. In fact, you ought to be prepared for it in your own witnessing, in your own interaction with people. And it goes something like this. Do you believe Jews are going to heaven? You know, this was Larry King's favorite question for every Christian that he interviewed. Him being a Jewish person, his question was, do you believe... And he did so graciously. And I don't even think sometimes... I don't even think he had an agenda. I think he was honestly seeking and sincere and and wanted to know. But here you are faced with a Jewish person on national media, a beloved figure saying, do you think Jews are going to heaven? And if they waffled around or or hemmed on, he'd say, well, do you think I'm going to heaven? Because that's ultimately the question. But you could ask it this way. Do you believe Muslims are going to heaven? Do you believe Hindus are going to heaven? In this presidential campaign, do you think Mormons are going to heaven? And, and then they'll move the question into more particulars. Do you think Mother Teresa is in heaven? Do you think Mitt Romney is going to go to heaven? Do you think Abraham Lincoln is in heaven? But it really comes down to this. Do you think I'm in heaven? Or do you think my sweet Aunt Frida is heaven or my caring father or my loving mother good sincere perhaps religious people you see the bible has a lot to say about this question and the, and i would i would put forth to you the bible is very clear in answering this question but today we're in romans 10 and so we're in romans 10 1 through 4 and Paul talks about who goes to heaven in Romans 10, 1 through 4. And specifically, he's answering this question. Why, why, did so, do, why are so many pagan Gentiles getting what is promised by God to his chosen people? Or to say it this way, why did so many religious, zealous, sincere Jewish people miss out on God's salvation? Why is that happening when so many bad people are rushing in? Well, let's read Romans 9 and let's pick it up. In verse 27, not Romans 9. Let's turn to Romans 9, and let's pick it up in verse 27. We're going to read down to verse, uh, Romans 10, verse 4. And the reason we're doing that is because the same topic is being discussed. Romans 9, 10, 11 is all discussing one topic. Let's take a look at it. Notice what is happening. And Isaiah, and, and Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, 
If the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. If it wasn't for God's gracious, sovereign grace, not a single Jewish people person would be alive and would be going to heaven. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that, could, that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law? Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Of course, that is Christ. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Now, here comes verses 1 through 4. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, that is, unbelieving Israel, is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Actually, that's in the present tense. They are not submitting to God's righteousness, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now, I see in these four verses five reasons, five reasons why good people won't go to heaven. Five reasons why good people won't go to heaven. Let's tackle it. Number one, reason number one, being religious is not good enough. Being religious is not good enough. How do we know that? Well, look at verse one. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them. Who's, who's the them? Israel. And what were they? Religious. I mean, they were religious. And yet he says is that they may be saved. The Jews of Paul's day were very religious people. And yet very clearly he says that they are not saved. Now he implied the same thing. Look back at Romans 9, 1 through 3. He implied the same thing in Romans 9. He says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Why is your heart so burdened? For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. My fellow Jews are cursed and headed for hell. And notice, this isn't just Paul's opinion. Look at verse 1 again. This is the truth of God that is in Christ Jesus and is born by the witness of the Holy Spirit. So it's not my opinion, Larry King. It's not your opinion. It's God's opinion that being religious is not good enough. But think for a minute how religious the Jews were in Paul's day. Move on down to verses 4 and 5 in Romans 9. I mean, these people were religious. They are Israelites. And there's one thing that has characterized the Jewish people in every century. Those that are Orthodox is a zeal and a religious, a religiosity as we are the people of God. Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from them and from their race, according to the flesh, is Christ. So you see that these folks had all these religious privileges. And yet Paul says, my heart's desire is that they may be saved. Now, most Jewish people in Paul's day did the following. They went to synagogue every Saturday. They had a strong grip on the Torah. 
They heard it. If they had a copy of the scrolls, they would read it. They studied it. They memorized it. They meditated it. They taught it to their children. They observed the Sabbath every Saturday, and they kept it holy. They did these things in keeping with God's instructions and God's commands in the law. They did these things religiously, looking forward to the Messiah, the chosen one, the anointed one, the coming one, God's chosen Savior and King. Man, they were religious. They were zealous. They were consistent. Now, many people are very religious. Would you agree? Muslims, extremely religious. Hindus, Catholics are very religious. Baptists, we're religious. Mormons, Jehovah Witness, Native American Indians, every one of these people that I have mentioned in groups of people have their own religious practices and they are very religious. Yet here in verse 1, Paul is passionately praying for a very religious people to be saved. And Paul knew what he was talking about because before he accepted Christ, he was a very religious person. Look at your Bibles. Turn to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. Listen to Paul. You know, here's the thing we have to remember. If we're going to say, oh, you know, my, my loved one who's, who's, a, who's a good person, who was a religious person and, and devoted to the church is going to be saved, then we have to ask ourselves, why did the Apostle Paul ever need Jesus? See, we, 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 we forget these things. We, 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 we keep them in different categories. Oh, yeah, yeah, Paul got saved. Wasn't that great? Acts 9, wonderful, wonderful conversion. Wonderful conversion. My religious aunt, she's going to heaven. Well, if your religious aunt's going to heaven, then why did Paul need to meet Jesus on the road to man? Because he was a religious man. Look at Philippians chapter 3, and let's look at verse 3. Here's what he says. Here's what he says about a true relationship. For we are the circumcision who worship that is, we are the, the, uh, the people who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence, no confidence in the flesh. You could just as easily say in religious works. But look at verse 4. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Basically, what he's saying is, if you think your religion can get you to heaven, well, I'll tell you what, I can out-religiosity you. That's, that makes no sense, but it makes a point. So I guess it's good communication. I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, as you were taught, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm just not a Jew. I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Okay? As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. And yet Paul needed Jesus. I was a re religious before I received Christ as my Savior and Lord. For 17 years, I went to church, church three houses down from my house, walked to that church. Every Sunday, I was in church for the first 17 years of my life, and I thank God for that. I thank God that my parents, when they moved to the Northland when I was four, they sought a church out. They visited several churches. I was active in my youth group. I loved my youth group. Uh, I was considered a leader in our youth group. I took communion every Sunday. I went through a confirmation class at age 13 that led up to Easter. I was baptized at Easter and given a beautiful black Bible with my name in it. And yet I could tell you that I was lost as lost could be. I didn't understand that God created me for a purpose. I didn't realize that Christ died for sinners like me and wanted to wipe away my guilt 
wipe away my my uh, my separation, the bridge, the separation between me and my Creator. Uh, shower me with His love, grow me for His purpose, and that I could have a personal, growing relationship with God as my heavenly Father. I knew none of those things. I knew none of those things. And week in, week in, I heard it, a homily of of a of a message that made no connection with my heart, no connection with me and God. And yet, during this time, I was drawn to and fascinated by people who talked about God in a real and personal way. I can tell you, I, I can't remember some of their names, but I can tell you there was a good solid four different people in those 17 years who manifested a personal relationship with Jesus Christ that I did not understand, I did not know, and yet I was drawn to and fascinated by. I had no idea how to experience in a personal and practical way that made a difference in my everyday life a relationship with Jesus Christ. And yet, by all outward accounts, I was religious and there I was a good kid. I was a good student. There was no reason at all to think that I would not go to heaven. And yet, being religious is not good enough to make you right with God. And just because you sit in a garage doesn't make you a car. And just because you sit in church doesn't make you a Christian. Gwen recently was expressing her concern over the salvation of, a, of, of someone who, who is a member of a local church with a fellow teacher. And, and this teacher knew this person and got very puzzled, got a puzzled look on her face and said this, well, they go to church so faithfully. They're so devoted to their church. You can always count on them. But you see, religion is not good enough. Now, in this day and age, a lot of people are down on organized religion. So you might be talking to someone that says, well, I don't, you know, I'm not into religion. I'm into spirituality. So let's look at reason number two. Reason number two why good people won't go to heaven is because being zealous is not good enough. Being zealous, or you could say being sincere, or being spiritual is not good enough. What about someone who's just passionate about what they believe? Well, notice what verse 2 in the first part of verse 3 says. Here's, and notice it begins with the word for. He's giving reasons. He's giving reasons. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. And then he explains it in verse 3. For, here's my explanation, being ignorant of the righteousness of God. So let's stop right there. What's he say? about the Jewish people who were unsaved. They were zealous, extremely zealous. They were fanatically zealous, but not according to what? What's the verse say? Not according to knowledge. Now, uh, those things, those privileges that I I read to you in verses 4 through 5, I I won't repeat those, but these are the things that they were zealous about. Man, they, they had a chant, we are the children of Abraham. I don't know if it went that way, but but it's probably sounding more Jewish than that. But we are the children of Abraham. I mean, they, you know, I mean, to, to deny that, boy, you, they were zealous. That was their cheer. The glory of the tabernacle in the temple. Why did Stephen get stoned? Because he dared say God lives in the heavens and not in a house built by men. Those are fighting words for a Jewish person. The glory of God, the covenants of Abraham, Moses, and David were all given, and they were zealous for them. The, the giving of the law, oh my, man, they were zealous in how they practiced it. They were zealous in how they preserved it, meticulously copying it. They were zealous to protect it. 
and they were zealous to pass it on. They were zealous about the worship at the temple, the altar, the sacrifices, the precise procedures. I mean, they were sincere, spiritual, and zealous in all of this. And man, were they zealous about the coming Messiah. But as zealous as they were, here's what Paul says. It was not according to what? Knowledge. And yet we live in a day when there's a downplay on doctrine, there's a downplay on teaching the Bible, there's a downplay. In fact, uh, Gwen and I, we were, we were uh, listening to a, a, a TV preacher uh, this morning. We were listening to him, and the guy was funny. I mean, he was funny. This not, it's not the smiling guy. It's a different guy. Uh, and, and this guy was just funny. And, 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 and of course, I'm, you know me. You don't come here for the jokes. I know that. And so, you know, I'm just listening to the guy. And he was funny. And he was just funny. But as we listened to him over the course of 20 minutes, it's like, man, I got about a dozen jokes. But, you know, where's the, you know, this is the day we live in a downplay of knowledge. But listen, zeal without knowledge is not good enough. Let me make four observations about zeal without knowledge. So that you can better understand, because this is a critical one. And believe me, I'm doing good on this. Uh, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who I would really recommend you read, did like four sermons just kind of on this phrase. So I'm trying to keep it down. Let's look at four observations. Number one, zeal without knowledge lacks personal experience. That's what he's saying. They, They lack personal experience of the righteousness of God. And what does the righteousness of God is? We're going to look at that in a moment. It's God's way of making people right with himself. It's God's way of making people good enough to go to heaven. They were ignorant uh, or they lacked personal experience of this righteousness. To understand zeal without knowledge, you've got to let verse 3 explain verse 2. See, he says in verse 2, not according to knowledge. Well, what's that mean? Did they just need a little education? No, they were ignorant of the righteousness of God. That word knowledge in verse 2 is epigenosos in the Greek. And what that means and why that's significant is that there's two words for knowledge. One is knowledge that's just content and just kind of just under, you know, just, okay, there it is, knowledge. I know that. This word is for a fuller, practical, personal understanding. It's a full knowledge. It's that knowledge that impacts your life. It's that knowledge that is consistent with truth. I may know a lot of things, but it may not be personal and practical to me. Well, what is that that they lacked a personal understanding of? Verse 3, look at verse 3, being ignorant of what? The righteousness of God. See, they were zealous, but their zeal was not according to the righteousness of God. Listen to Matthew 23, 15. Jesus He's the master teacher. Let me let him explain to you what zeal without knowledge, lacking personal experience means. Listen to what he says in Matthew 23, 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. And here's why. For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, that is a convert to Judaism. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourself. Now, that's a powerful statement. That is a huge measure of zeal. You will travel land and sea. You will take a missions trip around the world just to lead one person to your religion. That's zeal. The problem is you lack God's righteousness, and as you teach them your religion and your zealous ways, you make them twice a child of hell. That's zeal without knowledge. 
Number two, second observation. Zeal without knowledge leads to prideful extremes. Zeal without knowledge puffs up. It leads to prideful extremes that are anything but good. Let's move through these quickly. Number one, zeal without knowledge leads to extreme pride versus humility before God and toward others. Pride before God, pride towards others. Look how zealous I am. Look how spiritual I am. Look how sincere I am. Do you remember the publican and the Pharisee? Two men went up to the temple to pray, Jesus said. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, and even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give tithes of all I've got. There's a religious, zealous individual. Would you agree? But the tax collector, standing afar off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, here's what Jesus says. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified. You know what that word means? Declared righteous. Justified, declared right with God. Good enough to go to heaven. This man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Extreme pride versus humility. Number two, extreme criticism versus mercy towards others. Extreme criticism versus mercy. Zealous people are often critical of those who lack their zeal. Again, Luke chapter 5, verses 30 through 35. Listen as the Pharisees criticized Jesus' disciples for not fasting as they did. Verse 30, And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at the disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Here's what he's saying. I'm not looking for good people because good people think they've already got it. Good people, you know, it's just another name for good people who think they're good enough to go to heaven. Self-righteous. And that's what Jesus said. I didn't come looking for good people. I'm not calling people that think they're already good enough. I'm calling sinners to repentance. Number three, extreme hate versus love for those who differ from you. Zeal without knowledge leads to extreme hate. Do you understand that zeal without knowledge is what put Jesus on the cross? The Jews thought they were doing God a favor by killing his son. They felt they were showing their their salvation, showing their righteousness, showing their goodness, showing their religiosity when they put Jesus on the cross. Here's what Peter said to them. But you denied the holy and righteous one. Remember, we're talking about being right with God. And you asked for a murder to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. You know, Paul could relate to this. In Acts chapter 22, uh, Paul himself talks about his own zeal before coming to Jesus. Turn it to that, Acts 22. Your Bible is to Acts 22. This is, inter- you know, this, this is a great, Acts 21 and 22 is a great chapter to, uh, it's a message in itself on this idea of being zealous for God. Because what's ironically going on is the Jews in their zeal are trying to kill Paul 
to show their righteousness to God. And Paul says, hey, before you beat me and kill me, let me tell you, I was just like you. I used to beat and kill people like me, Christians, before I was saved. You see, zeal is not enough. L- listen to what he says. Verse, uh, chapter 22, let's look at verse 1. Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. Before you beat me in your zeal, before you stone me and kill me, let me tell you, when they heard that he addressed them in the Hebrew language, see, they're like, oh, wow, he's religious like us. You know, he's one of us. They became even more quiet, and he said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city. The city was Jerusalem. Educated at the feet of Gamaliel, one of the, the leading Pharisees, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers. You know what he just said? I was religious. And then notice what he says. Being zealous for God. The very same phrase here that he says of the Jews. Being zealous for God as all of you are this day. He's saying, I used to go after people just like you're going after me. And notice what he says. I persecuted this way. That's Christianity and Christians. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them, I received letters to the brothers and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. But then look at what he says, verse 6. As I was on my way, And drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? See, you think you're doing this in my name and yet you are persecuting me. Now, and and I answered, who are you, Lord? Uh Uh-oh, who are you? Zeal without knowledge. Do, Do you see that? Zeal, but not according. I'm doing this for God, and yet I don't know who he really is. And he said to him, I am. Powerful words for a Jewish person. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Well, there's so much more that I can show you there. The third observation is this. Zeal without knowledge is due to two things. Number one, zeal without knowledge, according to verse 3, is due to two, th- two things. Being spiritually ignorant. Being spiritually ignorant of God's way of making people right with himself and others. You've got to understand zeal without knowledge in light of verse 3. Being ignorant of the righteousness of God. Now, we do, I, I cringe at, at using the word ignorant. Because that's just not a good, you know, you're, you know you're, the problem, you know, let me witness to you. Your problem is you're ignorant. Now, that right there does not go over well. But I put before there, spiritually ignorant. See, we might be highly educated, all sorts of degrees, very smart, very quick, and and not even educated, maybe just uh, a street smart and work smart. But if we think our zeal and sincerity and common sense is going to get us to heaven, then we're spiritually ignorant of God's way of making people right with himself. This is, what, this is what he means by ignorance in verse 3. Not understanding God's way of me- making people right with himself and others. Let me give you this phrase, the righteousness of God. He says they've been ignorant of the righteousness of God. This word is, you, this is the theme of Romans. It's all throughout Romans. Let me give you what it means. And I'm just breaking it down 
breaking it down. All three of these are, are encompassed in this. They're interrelated. You can't, sometimes one's emphasized over the other, but you've got to get this down. You've got to get this down. The righteousness of God involves God's standard for judging whether people are right with him. The righteousness of God, when you see that phrase, you think that's God's standard. It's his righteousness, not mine. It's his righteousness, not Aunt Frieda's. It's his righteousness, not my parents. It's his righteousness, not my pastors, not my priest. It's his righteousness by which I'm going to be judged. Now, that right there makes one what? It ought to make us tremble with That's God's standard. You think 94% for an A was hard? You know, I remember going, you know, the longer you go in school, that percentage for an A keeps moving up, you know, and and 100%, 100%. Number two, righteousness of God not only involves God's standard, but involves God's saving activity. God's saving activity in declaring sinners right with God. He not only judges whether you're right, he's the one that then renders a verdict. Here's what I'm going to do to make you right. That's the righteous. So the righteousness of God is this very dynamic action of God saving sinners, making them right with him. That's a beautiful thing. Number three, it's God's standing of being right with him. So here's the standard. Here's what God's going to do to make... Here's the standard of who's right with God. Here's the activity, the saving activity to make people right. And then here's the standing or status you get as a free gift when he declares you right. Now, that's a beautiful thing. Let me say that again. That's a beautiful thing. Okay? That's what what they were ignorant of. And I pray that none of us here are ignorant of that. That we do not fail to understand that. That we do not just know it with our head, but we have experienced it in a personal, full, epigenosis way. We have a full, practical knowledge that God's righteousness is His standard of judgment. That God's righteousness is what I must receive in order to be right with Him. And when I do, I stand right with Him regardless of how far I personally fall short. You see, zeal without knowledge is unaware that God is the standard. It's unaware that God must save me, not me and my good works. It's unaware that I can stand before God and know that I am right with him. Beyond any doubt, without any fear, with peace in my heart, I am right with my God. And though no one else may agree with that, if he agrees with it, then that's the thing. that. So it's being spiritually ignorant of those three things that comprise the righteousness of God. Number two, it's being spiritually deceived about it. So this, I don't want you to think this knowledge and ignorance is a thing that now I just taught you and now you know it. Okay, all I do is, you know, all I do. And anybody who does any witnessing knows that we're not just talking about information. You ever shared the information of the gospel with a lost person who was spiritual, religious? And what happens? There is not an understanding there. Why? Because they are spiritually deceived about God's way and choosing to disregard it 
They choose to disregard it, reject it, and even rebel against it. Listen, listen to this. Listen to Acts chapter 3 again. Paul's, uh, Peter is preaching to zealous religious Jews. And here's what he says. You denied the holy and righteous one. Oh, you deny, see, you're denying God's standard and you're denying God's saving activity and therefore you do not have God's standing. You de- and you asked for a murder to be granted to you and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. Then he says in verse 17, and now brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Here's what he's saying. He's not saying, he says, your issue is not just information, it's transformation. You you did this in spiritual ignorance because you were deceived and deliberately sinning against God. Now you need to repent of that. And it's not just Jews in the first century. It's also Gentiles like us who, who were spiritually ignorant and deceived about God's righteousness. Turn to uh, Ephesians 4, 17 through 19. Ephesians 4, 17 through 19. And I want you to see. Ephesians 4, 17 through 19. And what, I, what I'm wanting you to see is that spiritual ignorance is linked with spiritual deception and deliberate rebellion against God's righteous standards. Notice what it says, 4, 17 through 19. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. So there again, the knowledge aspect. They are darkened in their understanding. Again, knowledge aspect. Alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. But what does it do? Due to their what? Hardness of heart. So the problem isn't just mental. It's spiritual. It's not just the head. It's the heart. They have become callous and given themselves over to sensuality, greedy, to practice every kind of impurity. And then look at 1 Peter 1. Uh, turn to 1 Peter 1, 14 through 15. 1 Peter 1, 14 through 15. Notice what it says. He's saying, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Now, here's the point. You deliberately chose to sin because you were deceived about the consequences of God's righteousness, the, the, the standard of God in your life. You, you did these passions, you did them, but it was in your former ignorance. Okay, one final observation about zeal without knowledge. This, this covers the whole topic. Zeal without knowledge may be sincere and even appear spiritual, but it's still not good enough. Because here's the thing. I don't know that you know a lot of Jewish or Muslims, uh, Muslim people at this time in your life who are out pers- actively persecuting Christians. But please understand, that is going on all around the world. So this lesson is very relevant. I want to bring it the relevance to where you live. And that has to do with people who say, I'm not into religion. I'm into spirituality, and 
and I'm sincere. Look how sincere they are. What about sincere good people who are not Christians? Won't God welcome them into heaven? Well, this assumes that sincerity equals truth. Okay, it doesn't matter what you believe. It matters that you're sincere. Sincerity is equal to truth. But what does Proverbs 16.25 say? There is a way that seems right to a man. He's zealous about it. He's sincere about it. He is religious about it. There's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to what? Death. So sincerity is not enough. Sincerity will only get you so far, then it must face reality. I mean, I can stand up on a building, jump off of a building and say, I can fly, I can fly, and I can, I can, and I can be really zealous about it, and I better be. I can fly, I can fly, and that'll work for a while, about you know, as many stories up as the building is. And then there will be a crashing introduction to reality. Then truth will kick in. And all my sincerity will not get me where I thought it would get me. You see, it's back to the Polar Express. It does matter which train you're on. You can sincerely be riding the train to God's salvation when, in fact, you're headed to the concentration camp. You see, if someone is actively believing something that's not true, and as a result, they are implicitly or explicitly rejecting God, it seems odd for God to welcome such a person into heaven. Oh, great. You were sincere, but the whole time you rejected my son who came and died and rose. I gave you my most precious gift, and yet you rejected it, but you were sincere in your rejection. Sincerity is not enough. One has to believe what is true. So we hit two of the four reasons. What's the first reason good people won't go to heaven? Being religious is not good enough. Second reason, being sincere is not good enough. Now, what we'll do next week is we're going to hit less uh, reasons two through five, or three through five. And there's even more reasons why people think they're good enough to go to heaven. Now, let me challenge you. Let me challenge you to think through this on a couple levels. Number one, think through of where you were. If you know Jesus as your Savior, if, if you have accepted Christ as your Savior, I want you to think back to your pre-Christian days. And I want to think about, I want you to think, was I religious? Was I sincere? When I, was I zealous? Now, some of you weren't. You were the Gentiles. You know, you live like a Gentile, but some of you were like the Jews. You were religious, you were zealous, you were sincere, but you were sincerely wrong. I think it's good to think back to those days and to think about that and realize. And then I want you to think, how many of those people, like, people like that do I work with? How many people like that do I live around who are good, sincere, religious people? And I want you to think, God... What are you leading me to do? What are you leading me to do? What did you lead people to do for me when I was in that? I'm so thankful that the librarian at my high school didn't assume religious people went to heaven. I'm so glad she didn't think honor students just go to heaven. I'm so glad she didn't assume that clean-cut, good-looking, uh, well, I shouldn't say that, I guess, uh, good-looking skinny looking 
uh, kids go to heaven. Instead, ask questions like, do you have a personal, I mean, do you read your Bible? Do you go to church where people bring their Bibles? You know, if they don't bring their Bibles, do you think they're reading them? Why don't you start reading your Bible? Why don't you start getting some knowledge, some, some practical experience with God? And all it takes is that, that wasn't intrusive. Now, that was built up through acts of kindness and service and, and, and joking and laughing with a, with a 16-year-old kid that you do to build bridges with that. But those simple questions open doors through the power of the Holy Spirit. So think about it. Think about it. Sometimes it's just asking. But it's a question that's been saturated in prayer. It's a question with the intent to show God's standard, God's saving activity, so that someone could enjoy God's status of being right with him. Isn't that beautiful? And if you don't have that this morning, and I don't assume because you're here, zealously taking notes, filling in blanks, looking your Sunday best, that you know Jesus because you can be a Baptist and be as religious and sincere and going to hell as Saul was. And so I hope you receive Jesus. Come back next week. Do it now. But let's get a zeal that's according to knowledge. Let's pray. Father, we come. And we're, we're, we're just humbled because we know that we're not good enough. Just going to a Baptist church and carrying a Bible and knowing the right things and saying the right things is not enough. We just aren't good. But Jesus, you are. And you offer yourself. Lord, may we evaluate where we are. Do we have zeal? You know, zeal's not a bad thing. Do we have zeal? And is our zeal in keeping with God's righteousness? We pray these things. In the name of the righteous one, the only righteous, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.